Welcome to this year's third episode of Students Talk Security. My name is Monica Montgomery, and I'm a senior here at Notre Dame, double majoring in political science and peace studies, and an undergraduate fellow in the Notre Dame International Security Center. Today, we are fortunate enough to be joined by Professor Lori Nathan. Professor Nathan is the director of the Kroc Institute for International Peace Studies New Mediation Program, which will serve as an international center of excellence for mediation research, training, policy, and practice. Professor Nathan is also a senior mediation advisor to the United Nations, serves on the UN Academic Advisory Council on Mediation, and is the lead designer and trainer of the UN High-Level Mediation Course. He's participated in high-level peacemaking efforts in Africa and has helped design the mediation units of the African Union and African sub-body, sub-regional bodies. He is the author or co-editor of six books and over 50 articles. Professor Nathan is a native of South Africa and was involved in the anti-apartheid movement. Thanks so much for being here, Professor Nathan. Thank you for inviting me. Awesome. So today in this podcast, we're going to discuss the 2005-2006 mediation efforts in Darfur in which Professor Nathan was involved. We'll examine why it failed and apply some of its lessons to current mediation efforts in Syria and Yemen. So to begin, I'd like to give a little background on the situation in Darfur that led to this need for mediation, and then we'll get into our discussion. Fighting broke out in 2003 in the Darfur region of Sudan, and rebel groups rallied against the Sudanese government over its long-term oppression and marginalization of non-Arab communities. The government and its proxy militia, the Janjaweed, responded to the rebellion with such systematic and large-scale destruction of people and villages that they were accused of committing genocide. By 2006, an estimated 350,000 people had been killed and almost 2 million people had been displaced. Beginning in late 2005, an African Union mediation team led talks to broker a comprehensive peace agreement between the government of Sudan and the main rebel movements in Darfur, the Sudan Liberation Movement, the SLM, and the Justice and Equality Movement, JEM. A peace agreement was signed in May 2006 by the government and one of two SLM factions, but was rejected by the JEM and the other SLM faction. Therefore, the agreement did not create a lasting peace and violence continued after the mediation efforts. Anything to add, Professor Nathan? I think that's a good summary, uh, Monica. But I would simply add that, you know, because of the the scale of the killing, there was a very high level of emotional and political concern in international circles and in African circles. And that put enormous pressure on the mediators. We were under pressure from donors and from the African Union and the UN to achieve a peace agreement quickly in order to stop the mass killing. And we were saying as the mediation team, there's no quick way of doing that. And so we can get into the details, but just to create some sense that this was high drama Mm -hmm. with mass rapes and eviction of people from villages and over 350,000 people killed, uh, several million in Mm -hmm. IDP camps, camps for internally displaced people, refugee camps. So this is a real sense of, of emotional, dramatic, crisis unfolding. Absolutely. I I can't even imagine the pressure that the the international community and the AU was placing to to get some progress and make some way on peace here. So as we've said, you were a member of this African Union mediation team that went to Darfur in 2006. Can you please tell us some more how you came to serve in that position and what particular role did you play in the mediation efforts? I was at that time heading a Center for Conflict Resolution in Cape Town, attached to the University of Cape Town. 
I had worked with African Union colleagues, but not formally in a mediation. And I happened to be in Abuja, which is the capital of Nigeria. I was working with ECOWAS, the regional body in West Africa, to help them develop their mediation capacity. Over dinner one night, I uh, had dinner with members of the AU mediation team for Darfur. This mediation team was based in Abuja, Nigeria. And I presented a criticism of what I thought the mediators were doing wrong. And the AU mediator was not defensive. He looked at me and he said, will you join the mediation team? Wow. <laughs> <laughs> and I had a four-year-old daughter and a family in Cape Town. <laughs> and so I hesitated, discussed this with the family, and then responded favorably. So I joined the mediation team. I served in one of the three commissions that were set up. The uh, mediation was divided into three commissions, focusing on security, power sharing, and wealth sharing. I was in the security commission, and I ended up doing the bulk of the mediation in that commission, and I drafted much of the Darfur Peace Agreement's provisions on security. Okay. Awesome. Well, it certainly sounds like a very interesting experience that you had there, and I'm sure has played a large role in the, the efforts that you've given to the UN um, and the experience that you have coming out of that. So writing on this failure of the Darfur mediation that we've alluded to, you said that the strategy of deadline diplomacy, which rushed the mediation process and forced a peace agreement onto the parties, led to its downfall. Expanding on this, what were the major challenges that led to the failure, and what were any of the successes that you saw from the mediation? Let me say... First off, there were no successes. <laughs> okay. There was a mediation that failed. Mm -hmm. And failure meant that the killing in Darfur continued. Yes. So for a mediation like this, meaning in Darfur and elsewhere in civil wars, the test of success or failure is do you bring peace or do you not? Absolutely. So there was no success at all. We failed, and much of that is attributable to the mediators and the pressure we were put under by the donors. But at the end of the day, whether mediation succeeds or not depends not primarily on the mediators. It depends on the parties. Yes. So you have conflict parties that are at war with each other. And the decision on whether they continue to fight or end the fighting lies with them. It doesn't lie with the mediators. We as mediators can be most helpful where parties want to end their conflict and they're not sure how, and they don't trust each other sufficiently to sign a peace agreement confident that all sides will respect that agreement. So mediators can be immensely helpful in that situation. But if, as in Yemen today and in Syria today, if the parties want to continue killing each other, there's nothing mediators can do. And this is because mediation is essentially a consensual undertaking, meaning it's not coercive, we can't force, compel parties to stop fighting. We are there at their behest with their consent, and they have to consent to any peace agreement. We were put under enormous pressure, as I said earlier, by donors and the UN and the African Union to get a quick peace deal. And I would say privately to those that put us under pressure, I would say to them facetiously, do you want a peace agreement or do you want peace? Because I can give you a peace agreement quickly, but I can't give you peace. The parties mm -hmm. can give you peace. And they've killed each other in such large numbers. The level of hatred is so high. The level of suspicion is so intense that there's no possibility of a quick agreement. 
We were being funded by the British government, and privately they would put pressure on us. They threatened to withdraw the funding for the mediation. And I would say to them facetiously, I don't know how to end it quickly. Tell me how you ended it quickly in Cyprus, which is ongoing, mm -hmm. or Northern Ireland, which went on for decades, or Israel-Palestine, which is not resolved. Tell me how you've done it quickly elsewhere, and then yeah, maybe we can learn from you. So we were under pressure basically to deliver a peace agreement that really looked beautiful on paper, but had no real legitimacy because it wasn't owned by the parties. And although, as you said correctly earlier, it was signed by the government and by one of the rebel factions, in truth, the government was not seriously committed to this agreement. They signed so that they didn't look like they were opposed to peace. They signed it cynically, knowing that the rebels wouldn't, and so they came out of it, the government looking quite good. Okay. But they never had a serious intention of signing, signing this. They had only contempt for the rebels and their rebellion. I see. So what do you identify as some of the major lessons that you take away um, from this particular mediation? Um, do you think that they've been followed, implemented in Darfur subsequently or in, um, general, in the general mediation community? One of the lessons that has not been widely accepted is that you can't rush the process. And I understand and have elaborated here on why the processes are rushed. They rushed for humanitarian reasons. We want to stop the killing. But you can't rush the process. The parties don't make decisions to kill and be killed lightly. In other words, you really have to be under enormous, uh, have an enormous sense of injustice and grievance and oppression to decide that you're willing to risk your life and that of your family to go to war to change the situation. So once they've made that decision, they're not going to be deterred. They make the decision to go to war in the belief that they're going to win. Mm -hmm. Nobody goes to war, starts a rebellion, believing they're going to lose. Now, may, they may be deluded. So you may look at this and think, well, you have no chance of success at all. But they're going to war thinking that they're going to achieve something. Now, you have to dissuade them that they're wrong Persuade them that they're wrong. Dissuade them from continuing violence. You have to convince them that they can have an acceptable deal with a hated enemy. Whew. Well, that is immensely difficult to do. It lies outside their political imagination. So the, the to use the buzzword, uh, national ownership. Okay. I mean, this is, this is what the UN preaches but doesn't practice adequately. So it preaches national ownership. The agreement must be owned by the conflict parties themselves, not by anyone else. Now, that big lesson is not always learned. Another big lesson not learned is that if you exclude major parties from a peace process and outcome, you will not get peace. Now, it seems pretty obvious, but to turn to a current conflict, Syria, where, as you know, Tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people have died and been forced out of the country where there isn't, has been a viable mediation process. In that case, at the start of the civil war, the rebellion in Syria, the position of the U.S. administration under President Obama was supportive of a mediated solution provided that the outcome did not include President Assad, who is still the president of Syria. So that position created a 
profound disincentive for Assad to be properly involved in mediation. Why would he want to be involved in mediation if he knew the outcome was that he would be kicked out of, out of government? And another recent conflict, Libya, had exactly the same dilemma, where the UN pursued mediation during the Libyan civil war, but the position of the US, the UK, United Kingdom and France was that President Gaddafi had to leave office. Mm -hmm. So where's the incentive for Gaddafi to stay involved in the mediation? Now, I'm sympathetic to the argument that you want dictators and tyrants to step down, of course. And that's completely legitimate from a democratic and human rights perspective. But at the end of the day, either you're going to defeat them militarily, which happened to Gaddafi, but not President Assad in Syria, or you're going to mediate a solution which entails compromise on all sides mm -hmm. and has to be inclusive if you want it to be sustainable. Absolutely. So how do you, when there is this pressure, when it is a high-intensity conflict like it is in Darfur, or was and there's so many lives being taken every day, stand up to the UN or, or the international system and say, hey, I know that this is there's a lot going on here, but to achieve real peace, we have to think about this as a slow process. How do you parse through explaining to people? Yeah. Or how do you make interim agreements with your with the mediator um, mediation parties to halt the violence in a way that you can work on the long-term process? You know, there's a limit to how much you can convince the parties. Absolutely. And mediators make a mistake when they think that they can cajole and bully the parties and appeal to the parties' better nature. I mean, that just comes across as self-righteous and patronizing. So if I were to say to the government of Sudan during this Darfur mediation or the government of Syria now, you know, why are you killing all your people? This is a humanitarian catastrophe and why don't you be compassionate? And they look at me like I'm completely mad, really. They're not going to take that seriously. They will give me a lecture on how their opponents are the devil incarnate. So why am I talking about peaceful coexistence? I, they will treat me as if I am ignorant. When we're under pressure from the donors and from our bosses, you know, we are saying to them privately, it's not ready for a deal, and we can't force the deal. And forced deals break down, and you know that. I don't have to give you an academic article with evidence. You know from your experience in the UN and elsewhere, forced agreements don't hold. And then they'll say to you privately, yeah, of course we know that, but says a British diplomat that I'm talking to privately, he'll say, I'm reporting to a minister. And the minister is in Whitehall, in London, and he's reporting to a parliamentary foreign affairs committee. Mm -hmm. And that parliamentary committee is reporting to parliament, and parliament is accountable to British taxpayers whose money is being spent on this mediation. So there's a political logic that applies to the mediation, but there's also political logic that is going on yeah in the governments in Washington and Whitehall, etc. And they have power. So that logic prevails over our logic. We were, in the Darfur case, putting pressure, resisting pressure from the donors, but eventually the UN Security Council passed a resolution that said this mediation will end. And then it specified the date, by 30th of April 2006. Now that's balmy. Mm -hmm. Your listeners can't see you shaking your head. 
which That's is absurd. <laughs> yes. So you're right. It was absolutely ridiculous. But those were our orders. And there was no arguing against it. Once the Security Council had passed a resolution specifying a date, that was the end of that. It's a shame. Yeah. So we've, we've talked about Syria some, you've brought it up, but I'd like to apply some of these lessons that you pull out, the, the national ownership, including making sure that it's an inclusive process and also the challenge when you come into a mediation saying that we have to have change of power, we have to have dictatorship come down. What, so let's talk about Syria. What do you see going, connected from the lessons from Darfur and in general, um, there's obviously been many rounds of attempted peace talks um, and mediation, so you can limit it to the most recent efforts um, or kind of since the Civil War broke out in 2011, what have been some of the major challenges to... Well, the, the key problem at the outset was that both sides thought they could win. And further, that the two sides, speaking crudely and broadly, government and rebels, although rebels were a coalition and disparate bunch, both sides had powerful regional and global backers, which reinforced their belief that they could win this thing militarily. So Assad is being backed by Russia, and many of the rebel groups being backed by the US, yes. and of course their neighbors involved. So that complicated the the conflict resolution process immensely. You have powerful actors who are not formally part of the mediation. So we kind of pretend for mediation purposes that the conflict actors are the government and the rebels, but actually the conflict actors include the meddling neighbor states, absolutely, including Saudi Arabia and Iran and Turkey, and they include the global powers that are not formally part of the mediation. They're not formally defined as conflict parties. The UN mediation initially sought to bridge the difference in position between the US and Russia, and that was the correct mediation strategy. They failed, but it was the correct approach. If we can get the powerful patrons to come to a common position in favor of a mediated settlement, then they would put pressure on their respective allies outside Syria and inside Syria. When it became clear as the conflict evolved that, in fact, the government was going to win, which is still the position, my advice to the Syrian rebels was, you have to negotiate your defeat. Mm. Meaning, what can you salvage? Because you're going to get crushed militarily. Absolutely. So what can you salvage politically if you go to the negotiating table? And I can't speak for the United Nations, but I'm convinced that the UN would be sympathetic if you said to them, please help us negotiate our defeat in a way that is not a total political annihilation. Because UN norms include promotion of human rights, respect for the rule of law, democratic norms, inclusivity, gender equality, etc., etc. So you, you, the UN is a friendly mediator on a normative basis. And the Syrian rebels with whom I was talking, this is uh, going back a year and a bit, could not contemplate politically and emotionally and ethically the possibility of coexisting with Assad. And basically they're getting smashed out of existence. So there's going to be a point that's not far in the future where the lesson is the government won. Absolutely. That's <laughs> obviously not what many people want to hear, but it's appreciated that the reality can be stated um, because 
that is the way that things, of course, seem to be moving. Um, so moving on to a different area that seems to be in the news, especially much um, more recently because of the rupture in humanitarian crisis is the civil war in Yemen, um, which there have been attempts at conflict mediation, but of course the, the violence is continuing. Um, what do you see as some of the main issues there? There too, there is a UN Security Council resolution that says basically the rebels, the Houthi, must back off and recognize the legitimacy of the government. Now, one can say politically, from a democratic perspective, the UN Security Council resolution is correct. The government is a legitimate government. The rebel position is not a legitimate position uh, to seek to overthrow a government through force. And so the council's position is correct politically, but it blocks mediation. Because if you're the rebels, what are you mediating here? You're mediating withdrawal. You're mediating your own defeat. So why would you want to support a UN-led yes, mediation? Yeah. And interestingly, but not surprisingly actually, that kind of resolution also makes the government resistant to mediation because the government is saying, what do we have to mediate? Where's the room for negotiation? Negotiations lead to or expect compromise. What are we, what are we being asked to compromise? The council's position is clear and correct. We are the legitimate government. We need to be restored to power. Mm-hmm. Ah. So that position might make members of the council feel good or the member states that pass those resolutions feel good. It's not helpful to mediation. And in a way, what some of the cases we've been talking about have in common, Syria, Yemen, and Libya, is that the position of the UN Security Council constitutes an impossible mandate mediation. Mm-hmm. So they are knowingly or unknowingly blocking the potential for conflict resolution through mediation, in which case the war is going to either end with outright military victory or you have a prolonged stalemate. Those are the options. So it seems a lot of these issues are that you're pointing to do come from this top-down approach to mediation that the UN sets a deadline, they set a plan, and they say, this is what we want, you must get it. Do you see, therefore, room for more grassroots, local-level mediation, or is that just not possible because these are high-intensity conflicts where the groups, they need someone coming in with legitimacy and power and and, an authoritative stance to bring together, or is the solution something that is less based off mandates? No, I think you're... You know, the, the position that you're raising about civil society or grassroots mediation, uh, it works very well, and there's lots and lots of um, evidence to support this. It works very well in situations of relative stability. Yes. And it works at the community level. So you don't find community groups very often, if at all, mediating at the national level. They mediate successfully at the community level if they're good and trusted by the community. But when the conflict's at the national level, and when it's hit this level of political violence, grassroots organizations are utterly overwhelmed. I mean, no one will take them seriously. They don't have the authority, the power, the resources uh, to even be noticed, let alone play a central mediating role. There might occasionally be exceptions where you have a very prominent, high-profile religious leader who's able to play by virtue of I would like to say his or her, but it's uh, his, uh, always in the nature of it, his moral authority, 
may be able to play a mediating role. And there are examples of that, but generally grassroots civil society organizations get swept aside. They're overwhelmed in these kind of high-intensity conflicts. So, so it needs intervention from the outside, and it needs leverage. In other words, in addition to mediation, not instead of mediation, pressure needs to be put on fighting parties to lay down their arms and to give peace talks a chance. Absolutely. Well, I have one final question for you because I feel like we're leaving with a grim picture of the state of, of mediation and that um, these UN and regional bodies efforts have failed. But of course, we're talking about some of the most difficult issues and civil conflicts, or civil wars and proxy wars that are occurring. Um, so what if any recent mediation efforts do you like to point to to say, hey, this worked, look at what they did here, hmm. um, as point to a, a good example. Yeah, great. You know, we talk all the time about the failures because the failures are catastrophic in terms of human life and other humanitarian consequences. Uh, we don't talk enough about success. Absolutely. And I recently did a great research project with the UN University on successful preventive diplomacy, where we looked at cases where the UN has successfully prevented, to put it idiomatically, a small fire from becoming a large fire. In okay. other words, where you see intense conflict, uh, escalating crisis, early signs of low-level violence, there are deep fears all around that this is going to explode into a, a national catastrophe, a civil war, an effective preventive diplomacy by the United Nations in partnership with local actors is able to calm things down. And our cases include Lebanon and Yemen before the civil war, um, Sudan, Malawi, Nigeria, and there were six cases and we were able to, we selected from a total of about 15 or 16 successful cases okay. that the UN had undertaken. It's interesting, you know, we picked um, Sudan, South Sudan as a successful case, although it later ended up in war, and yes. Yemen, mm -hmm. which later ended in war. And we picked those cases deliberately because it's one thing to be successful in the short term. So here's this emerging crisis. How do you prevent the crisis from exploding into a war and now, you, okay, you've succeeded. How do you ensure that your outcome is sustainable? Yes. So that's an, yet another big <laughs> challenge that we're grappling with. But to end on a positive note, and to answer your question uh, further, I come from a country, South Africa, which was in a civil war. And we are now a peaceful and democratic country. I was in the anti-apartheid movement. And prior to the unbanning of the liberation movements and the start of our negotiations, I did not think that a settlement with the minority, white minority regime was possible. Okay. And if you look at our neighboring states, Namibia was under South African occupation, is now independent and free and democratic. Mozambique fought against Portuguese colonial war and then a devastating war against the rebel movement known as Ranama. It's now at peace. Uh, Zimbabwe fought a war against British colonial rule and then white settler rule. and Despite all its problems, it's largely at peace. So we, we're, if we're looking for perfection, we're not going to find it perhaps outside of Scandinavia. Of course. <laughs> <laughs> and, I mean, many of the countries that I mentioned, South Africa, Zimbabwe, Namibia, Mozambique, 
do have low-level violence and high levels of corruption and crime, but they were able to manage the transition from war to peace, which makes a huge difference a in huge people's difference. lives. Absolutely, absolutely. Well, thank you so much for being here with us today. Uh, we really appreciate your, your willingness to share your very extensive and expertise background in this field, um, and I'm sure that our listeners will hopefully enjoy this conversation. Great. Thank you, Monica. If you'd like to follow the Notre Dame International Security Center seminar series, please visit our website at politicalscience.nd.edu forward slash ndisc forward slash or follow us on Twitter at hashtag nd underscore isc. Please note that opinions expressed in the seminar series are solely those of the participants or speakers, not of the International Security Center or the University of Notre Dame, which take no institutional position. Music for this podcast is licensed under SampleSwap.